I don't want to sit here and torture you for <laughs> ever. Welcome back. This is the seventh ever episode of the Me and My Friends podcast, recording live from my apartment in sunny southeast Portland, where we've just had one of the most miraculously beautiful days today. My guest is Jake Elliott, jakeelliottfiction.com. He's the author of the Heretic series featuring books including The Wrong Way Down, Crossing Mother's Grave, and another will discuss in a moment. He's also featured in journals and horror anthologies, including Underground, a selection of short fiction from the Northwest Independent Writers Association, Amok, an unnerving anthology of psychological decline and murderous frenzy, Fading Light, an anthology of the monstrous Fifty Shades of Decay is another, and his latest book is titled Hounds of the Hunted. In fact, I believe it just was released this past week, so we're going to dive into learning a little bit more about his career as a writer, how he got his start, uh, the lessons he's learned along the way, and maybe um, learn a little bit about what he's done to pay the bills in the meantime. Jake Elliott, thank you so much for being here for the Me and My Friends podcast. Thanks for inviting me, Mike. It's uh, going to be a lot of fun. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, it's been a long time since I've seen you, actually. It's been um, more than a couple weeks, hasn't it? <laughs> yeah. Almost I think, a year, I think. Yeah, the last time I saw you was at some weird party in the woods, right? Yeah, yeah, that's right, with the with the goat. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Oh. That's that's like the second podcast I've had that has started off talking about a goat. Oh, interesting. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, very fascinating. This should be called the goat podcast. Um but one thing that is interesting, worth noting, uh, since the last time I saw you, you've become uh, kind of the bionic man. Would you like to uh, tell the audience what's going on? Oh, yeah, sure. Um, I uh, was in a, well, it's actually rather complicated. I had a back surgery, like a, what's called a quadruple laminectomy and vertebrae fusion. So, wow. Yeah, that sounds very complicated. Sounds serious. <laughs> yeah, basically they uh, cut my back open about six inches and um, basically took a saw and chopped away some ex extensive bone growth that was uh, forming around the vertebrae and pinching off all the nerves so I, could, uh, I was having difficulty with uh, walking. Wow. Uh, feeling everything from the hips down. So it kind of stopped me from doing anything but be an author. Wow. And so uh, how did this injury come about, if you don't mind me asking? Oh, when I was, uh, when I was 16, got out of school, went riding around with a bunch of friends. And uh, my friend who was driving um, decided to take a dirt road a little too fast and planted himself, us, into a palm tree. Wow. And uh, I was the worst injured, and I was the only one wearing a seatbelt. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, it was back when they only had lap straps in the back seat, and they say that if I'd had the shoulder strap, I probably wouldn't have broken my back, but I did actually sever uh, one of my vertebrae. And uh, just under, if it was one vertebrae higher, I would have been a paraplegic. Holy cow. So, talk about getting lucky. Yeah, exactly, in uh, in a strange sort of way. Um, so you said that that happened when you're 16. I mean, is that, it, it sounds like one of those injuries that has taken your entire life to kind of work through, huh? Um, it is, it was certainly a life changing experience. Um, 
uh, in so many different ways. But uh, yeah, it certainly uh, opened up the eyes to um, uh, mortality. Um, there's just a simple fact that, uh, you know, when you're young, you look at life totally differently, that, uh, that your life is immortal. And um, to have an accident of such severity and to have been through as many surgeries by the, before I was 18 as I'd been through, um, it really brings a, a different scope as to life and death. Yeah, and so how did that um, being having to go through all those surgeries? I would imagine you're probably um, bedridden for a fair amount of time when everybody else is out running around. Uh, how did this impact your life? Well, I'll tell you the first the fir- after the accident was was interesting because um, I was one of the guinea pigs for a new style of um, brace instead of the big plaster Paris casts, which I would have been sentenced to one of those for, I I don't know exactly how long they sentenced people to those, but it was definitely a sentence. Um, And luckily this this new cast that they were trying was made out of plastic. And so um, uh, although I was bedridden for several weeks, um, I would, my mobility was much better than anything at the time. Of course, nowadays, I mean, I've got this like little thing. It looks like a backpack and that's my back brace after the last surgery I just did. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and so is this around the time that you became a writer or, I mean, did you get a passion for writing because of the situation that you found yourself in? Um, actually writing came a little earlier and that was because I was a problem child. I was you always, were? Oh yeah. I was always getting in trouble in school. Oh wow. Uh, what kind of stuff did you do? Oh, just stupid crap. Um, can I say crap on, on the air? <laughs> yeah, you okay. can. <laughs> okay. Just stupid crap. You know, um, getting a little mouthy with the teacher occasionally, usually, um, ditching class and just going to the library and reading, um, <laughs> I do that a lot, but, um, so I was a heavy reader when I was in high school, but I was also found myself in detention in uh, what was called on-campus suspension. And they'd give out these horrible work packets if you didn't have homework to, to work on or when you were finished with your homework, cause they wanted you to like be a slave to the grind while you were in there. And, um, they had these really awful like prompts for like writing assignments. And so I used to do these really sarcastic and long and elaborate stories about these stupid prompts. And I'd pass them around my friends and everyone would like laugh hysterically and we'd get in trouble again and then have to spend another detention or another uh, on-campus suspension. So it just was a repeating cycle. That's a real breakfast club of you. Yeah, yeah. That's kind of actually where it started. Though. That's where becoming a writer began. It was yeah. People began enjoying my stories and so I kept telling them. But, um, you know, life took, uh, you know, after um, the car accident... Um, I stopped writing for a while. Um, you know, I didn't really pick up writing again until I was about 28, and then I really got on to it again for, well, now um, so 16 years. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 16 years now. So. Mm-hmm. And in the times that I've hung out with you, you've always kind of alluded to a little bit of a rougher edge. I mean, a little bit rougher than, um, you know, just going to in-school suspension or whatever. But it's funny because the reality is you just seem like a very nice, quiet, docile gentleman. Well, they always say that, you know, and so there's always the quiet ones, you know, although he's such a quiet neighbor. We never expect him to go off and kill everybody in the room. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So I guess I fit that profile. Um, But um, yeah, I had a darker edge for a while. After the first couple surgeries, um, I kind of got a little addicted to the pain meds. And once the pain meds were gone, I found uh street drugs 
And uh, oh wow! So for a while, I actually um, well, we in the old days before they made methamphetamines in a bathtub, they actually could get like laboratory equipment, and it would take a twenty-four hour process to make. And a chemist who I knew decided that he would kind of like the kind of like on Breaking Bad, except he did it just for money and to get high, not because he had cancer and he had to pay his bills. Um, but anyway, um, I used to run chemicals for that guy, which I got free dope for it, which, you know, that's kind of, that was currency. Yeah. And how did you come to a place where um, you decided that you didn't want that lifestyle any longer? That's a really difficult question because I think it's a, it's a progression of a lifestyle that... Um, and just becomes more and more decrepit and more and more desperate. And uh, I, I think I was 19 when I first realized that um, I was headed down the wrong path, but I didn't know how to get out until, ironically, just before my 21st birthday, when um, a friend of mine suggested AA, which I thought was funny because I wasn't even old enough to drink. So I actually went to an AA meeting and which kind of got me on the path of, they said, no, 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 you're a drug addict. You need to go over here. And they sent me in the right direction, which, so I'm still very grateful that they pointed me in the right direction. You know, those programs get a lot of flack, but I've met a lot of people who have had their lives changed by them. I think they definitely do have an impact, especially when people have a serious problem with, um, I would say a, uh, well, addiction is generally an identity issue. That's my opinion. That's not a scientific fact, but I found that most people who have drug addictions have some sort of a either deep-seated pain um, that they don't want to accept or um, have some sort of identity crisis that they don't want to work through, and that's how drug addictions begin. I feel like a lot of people uh, who are turned off by AA uh, are turned off because they don't like the fact that there's... Um, kind of a spiritual practice to AA. And I'm curious what your experience with that was like. You know, that's kind of interesting because my, my family background's really different because my mother, I would say, is an absolute agnostic. My father's family is devoutly Catholic. So I was kind of in this really weird quagmire where I, I do have this limited belief, um, but it's still very, uh, I need lots of evidence. And I think there's been evidence in my life enough to convince me that there is some sort of power greater than me, and I'll keep it really that simple. And I think that's one of the things that I didn't have an issue with the recovery programs was I had already had, um, after the car accident, I'd already had some revelation that there was something touching my fate. There was, I believed in fate. If nothing else, I believed that there is a, a destiny. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting to me because you do a lot of dark fiction, horror. Um, you had this very traumatic car experience uh, at a young age. And then uh, you also told me that one of your careers, you actually were a nurse, was it? What were I you doing? I was a cardiac monitor technician. So basically I was on the ICUs, on the intensive care units, and my particular specialty was to monitor the cardiac rhythms of the, all the patients and to alert the nurses when there was a change and to actually know what those cardiac rhythms were and what that signified what the danger level was uh, for uh, when a when a signal because a, a heart's just an electrical impulse and just 
but if the impulse isn't coming right, then the blood isn't flowing right. And that's that was my job was to be the one on top of it when to let the nurses know. How does that work? Are you in like a command center where you're looking at a whole bunch of different monitors at that's the same time? Almost exactly how it works. Um, uh, there was two styles. If I was actually on the ICU unit, um, I would have basically three monitors in front of me and up to 36 patients I would watch. Um, usually it was, but usually there was a backup too. So it was me and another person watching the same patient. So if I missed something, hopefully they caught it. Um, that's, which is a good system to have. Um, yeah, yeah, good buddy system. But yeah, you'd see some, I'd see some really interesting things. Um, I remember my first experience with watching someone else die in a hospital and it was this horrible, horrible mess. It was, um, guy, it was in Las Vegas. So, um, and of course, we like to drink in Vegas. Uh, we don't stop the bars ever. Um, they're like the casinos. And they, they never close. So um, anyway, we had this one guy who was definitely an alcoholic. And his, his exit was very, very bloody. Very, very messy. And that was my first experience with watching someone expire. Wow. And, and so between the car accident, um, this experience... Um, you know, with drugs and then getting clean and then this job where you're watching people bleed out, it sounds like. Is this all um, what what influenced your direction as kind of a dark fiction horror writer or what? I would have to say uh, yes. Um, definitely, I, ha I have a very cynical view on life to begin with. And so I think that I, I do tend to see the ironies and um, with a little... I definitely see the ironies with without uh, blinders, I guess would be the best way of, of saying it. And that definitely goes into my writing. But I think what I like the most about both horror and fantasy is it's a place where you can really play with good versus evil. Because for a horror story to work, you have to have a definitive evil. And either the reader can be the point of good or some other character can be the point of good. But there's always going to be some conflict between the two principles of good versus evil or light versus dark, if you don't like the idea of good and evil. But, um, and I think that that's what I really like about writing both horror and fantasy and fantasy. You can really bend the rules a lot more than you can with, with, with horror. You're kind of, you're still stuck with this world. Whereas with fantasy, you kind of have a little more freedom. You can break things up a little bit more. And so does your fascination with horror go into both uh, film and um, literature in terms of storytelling? Do you have any favorites? You know, that's really funny because I, I, I like two different... I read completely different from what I write. Um, I, I've read a couple of the big names in fantasy and I really did not like what they were doing. And that's I think one of the things that inspired me to write fantasy was I felt I could do something... Well, at the time I thought better, but now that I've matured a little bit more, I will say that I've, I'm doing something different and it's, it's, um, very counterculture what I'm doing, but it's, but anyway, back to the question, uh, what was it? <laughs> I just got lost. No, it's cool. Uh, I was just asking, um, do you see parallels between the storytelling and literature and both? Oh, and oh my, my literature reading style. I'm sorry. I like American classic literature. I like reading um, Mark Twain. I like reading Hemingway. Um, Hunter S. Thompson is one of my favorites to read. Um, but I also, 
uh, have this sweet tooth for a late 70s pulp. So huh. I've found this, um, the uh, old Don Pendleton Executioner series, the um, the Destroyer, who of course is uh, Remo Williams, um, Nick Carter, all these really cool like 70s um, uh, Ultraman books, but super pulpy. So Yeah, I'm not really familiar with these books. Is there um, a common theme to them? And they're generally kind of like really cheap knockoff spy stories. Um, the cool thing about the Executioner series is that um, he's a vigilante. So his family was indirectly killed by the mafia. So he goes on this rampage and kills a couple mafia guys and then realizes after the fact, oh, crap, what did I do? And... Um, and so, of course, and he starts this war with the mafia, and it just progresses for thirty-eight books, and it's a fantastic series. Some of them, some of them are really pulpy and crap, but some of them are really good. Mm-hmm. And so, how long have you been publishing books now? Um, well, I've self-published only two books now, and uh, and I tried the waters with a couple short stories, but mostly I've uh, mostly I've stuck with um, traditional publishing. Um, but I've had a really bad start with uh, traditional publishing which is why i self-publish now basically my uh, well i like to say that as close to frauds my first publisher would fit that description very closely interesting we'll have to dive into that yeah we'll have to um, talk about that too uh and so have you ever met any of um these uh, writers that you look up to yeah i have a funny story about um meeting an author and i I had no clue who it was. I was in Dallas, and I was working on the original version of The Wrong Way Down at the time. I was 29, and it was it was a total disaster. It was a mess. I couldn't find anybody who would even look at it, and it really was just too young of a work. It just wasn't, it hadn't developed enough yet, and that was before Amazon, before you could self-publish, so your choices were Vandy Press or to try to find an agent who would get you a real publisher. And I was sitting in this bar, um, waiting on a friend after work. I was waiting tables, so we were out late at night. And I was sitting there drinking. I don't remember what I was drinking, but I was drinking heavily. And this guy comes up and introduces himself, says his name's Larry, and he wanted to know if he could just hang out and talk. And he said he was new in town. So I so sat down and talked to this Larry guy. And he said, you seem kind of down. What's going on? I said, oh, well, I'm trying to be a writer, and it's just frustrating. I don't really know what's going on. It's not, it's not going anywhere. And so he said, well, you know what? I got a little story about writers. And so I said, okay, I want to hear your story about writers. I figured the guy was hitting on me. Really? So I was, yeah, I thought he was hitting on me. So I was sipping my drink, and he was entertaining while I was waiting for my friend, so I, I wasn't too worried about it. And I was sitting there, and so he tells me this story. He says, well, you know what? Most people get in, you know, for most people, life is a river, and people get in the boat, and the river carries them to their destination, and they get there. And he says, but writers, it's totally different. Writers... They get dropped in the middle of the ocean. They've got to swim for shore. That's how you make it as a writer. And so I was like thinking, wow, that's pretty like that's pretty prolific. I wonder where um, that little pearl of wisdom came from. And so my friend shows up, and the guy turns around and introduces himself as Larry McMurtry to my friend. And I still didn't get the connection. And my friend says, "You wrote Lonesome Dove?" And the guy said, "Yeah." Holy so cow! Was, they, they were actually shooting the television show Lonesome Dove in, outside of Dallas, and so he was there, and thought I was an interesting character. So he came over and sat and talked with me for a while, and I had no clue. So had you read any of his books up to that point, or did I, you I go back and read all of them afterwards? I, <laughs> I still haven't, but um, I've seen a few of his movies that have, um, or books. 
movies that were based on his books or short stories. I've seen quite a few and mm-hmm. really appreciated them. Huh. Well, that was a pretty good um, metaphor that he shared with you. I still hang on to that because it's true. It's it's like swimming for your life. Yeah, and and so tell us a little bit about your career. Um, you know, getting started as an author. How how did that? How did everything start out for you? What's what's the process been like? Well, for me, it was really difficult because um, I I really did not want to become a Vanity Press. Um, author i wanted to i did not want to self-publish and uh there was a 10 years ago there was still a huge stigma to self-publishing um the whole concept of self-publishing you you must have really sucked if you had to self-publish so i was desperate to find anyone to take uh the wrong way down which uh, was basically a, a i knew it was going to be a tough market because it was fantasy fiction with elements of horror and the lead character is a priestess who falls from grace and becomes a heretic. That's a little bit of the plot line that, sorry for the spoiler, but um, it's, not, it's not really that big of a spoiler. Uh, so tr- trying to find a mainstream agent and a mainstream uh, publisher for that wasn't going to be very easy. So I figured I was going to have to probably go with a small press. And so... After being told no with the professional agents, I started looking at small presses because a lot of them would say that they would take a look at stuff un, unsubmitted, I'm, I'm sorry, unsolicited, meaning that uh, it didn't require an agent. And so I had just been surfing the internet looking for different um, publishing houses when I came across someone who said that they had just got published with Damnation Books. And so I was like, and so I was like, all right, that sounds interesting. So I looked them up and they really specialized in horror. And I was still, uh, I'm darker fantasy. I wouldn't say I'm dark, dark fantasy, but I'm certainly darker than, you know, you're not going to say, oh, Jake Elliott, he's just like Piers Anthony. Not, that's not going to happen ever. Um, but at the same time, you're not going to say I'm like Mark Lawrence. You're not going to say I'm like, um, you know, I'm very unique, but I definitely bent toward the darker side. So I tried Damnation Books, figured I'd give them a shot. And they loved it. They said, this is great. And one of the things that I knew the book needed was editing. That was one of the things that I knew was the problem with the book. Uh, Damnation Books uh, said they would do editing, which was a plus. It was like, this is a great relationship. We're already starting here. You'll get my books. You'll keep the... Uh, the. Luckily, the contract was only for a, five years. Um, luckily, because they did no... Well, they did very minimal editing to the book. And the book really needed like someone to really look over it and take care of it. It had a lot of issues. Yeah, that's about the time I met you, right? I mean, I think you had published your second book, and um, I had met you at a meetup that I was organizing, um, just you know, so the audience is aware. For a while, I was doing um, book marketing, helping authors to promote their books and and come up with marketing plans and public relations strategy and that sort of thing. And um, I met you at one of these meetings, and we started working together, and I. I I just can't express the shock that I had when I um, opened up one of your books and I started reading it, and it was really good, but there were really blatant um, grammatical errors and things like that, and I, I was just so shocked that a an actual publisher would let something like that through. I had also been working with uh, self-publishing companies, and what they would do is they would take 
you know, um, a cat could walk across a keyboard for, you know, 30 hours. They would take that manuscript of the cat walking on the keyboard and they would publish it. They didn't care. They didn't, they're just like, you know, fulfilling people's dreams, you know, not really doing the full true publisher process. But, um, when, when somebody has a brand like a, you know, sound like damnation books was trying to be an official, a real publisher. It was just absolutely shocking to, see the book in its uh, air quotes uh, completed form I like to think of Damnation Books kind of like a Venus flytrap or like um, a pitcher plant you know because all artists want an audience um, every single one of us we're, we're like little egomaniacs we just want someone to just pay attention to us. mommy 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 you know it's it's a lot like that and um, so when Damnation Books said yeah we, we really like where you're going with this story I think you know because basically they wanted the full submission process of first three chapters and the last couple chapters so they could see how the book beginning begins and ends. I said, yeah, this is exactly what we're looking for. Uh, we'll take it. And so, you know, you, you got that hope that, you know, this publishing company is really going to take it into the right direction. And, uh, they really did, they did very little for it. Um, but they had a huge catalog of, um, other authors who fell into the pitcher plant. Yeah, and so one of my first recommendations to you then was to go back to them and approach them and be like, hey, you, you said that you would edit my book. Um, what's up with you know these first couple chapters here? And what kind of reaction did you get from them? And they said, the, I talked to the editor who was the CEO of Damnation Books, and she said there was no problems with the editing. Even there was absolutely nothing wrong with the grammar in my book, and I was just making this up. Oh my goodness, that is so... I mean, how did you react to that? That's so outrageous. I I actually sent her a copy with every single grammatical problem. There was a total that we found, 128 grammatical errors in the book. And a lot of them were my fault. I can take the blame for that, but like I said, I knew the well, book needed... Well, hold on it. here. How can you, the author, take the blame when uh, it's, you know, the copy editor's job, which is, you're not the copy editor, you're the author. It's the copy editor's job to go through that and make sure that everything is correct. I, I agree. However, had I had a cleaner manuscript to send to them, had I understood the process of how writing a book should be, instead of thinking that it was the publishing house's job to you know, it is their job you know, they they failed at their job miserably and horribly and for a lot of authors there's a lot of people who um have been very upset with with what they got from damnation book the yeah form, the formatting was awful it was to totally unprofessional and and i'm going to take a moment just for uh educational purposes for anybody listening out there it's not this problem is not uh just damnation books there's a lot of publishers out there who are doing this to authors and there's i mean it's kind of on the author to educate themselves about how the publishing uh system works um you know i i i don't i'm not trying to say that it's like your fault that that happened what i'm trying to say is that um you know hopefully anybody listening to this should or will go and learn about the publishing process and then know that that that's how it's supposed to go when they work with one of these smaller more independent publishers or you know when they go to a self-publishing house because self-publishing houses they are a weird business they're they're not there to create the best 
possible book for you unless you pay them for every step along the way. And if you don't pay them for every step along the way, they don't necessarily let you know that, hey, we skipped um, all these typical processes that um, a, a normal publisher would go through. So instead, you you have the effect where um, somebody you know works hours and hours and hours to create their manuscript and then they have all this pride and then they take it to a self-publishing house and they're like all right you know let's do this book and then the self-publisher just takes what they have and maybe tries to upsell them on a couple things like editing and then you know many authors will be like well my friends and uh, English teachers so uh, I don't need another editing job you know but the reality being that editing for a book is a completely different skill set and incredibly important. And and so then you just have these self-publishing houses just pumping out all this, you know, garbage for lack of a better term. Um, and, and then when people get the final product and start sharing it around and, you know, their friends start saying like, hey, you know, this doesn't look like it was done properly. You have then a lot of people who are really upset and then feel like they've been taken advantage of well that's exactly the feeling it's um you know what's interesting is i'm grateful that i didn't go this with uh, one of the self-publishing um companies uh damnation books was a real well i don't know if they're a real publisher but the but there's no upfront fees basically how it works is they take your book and keep it for five years and then you get your rights back, or you can re-sign with them, and what end up, or you can pay the penalty. And so that's kind of the, that's kind of that's the hook right there. It's not, it's not that they get you up front; it's that they get you on the back end. It's like, yeah. So did you end up having to pay a penalty to get I your did. rights back? I did, but I only paid the penalty for the wrong way down, um, and I fixed up. I would say the majority of the errors that were in there. Um, there's always something that slips by. Nothing's wow. perfect. Was it like a prorated penalty or what? Oh no, they 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 punched me. They punched me right in the nose. It was like it was, I asked. For, I want both the rights back for both books. And I offered them a thousand bucks. I'm like, look, I'll give you a thousand bucks, because I had a lawyer who was interested in suing, but um, he said, look, if you can get both your books back for a thousand bucks, that'll save you five hundred with retaining me. And so I was like, okay. So I tried that approach, and she said, they said, nope. Damnation Books said, nope. We will not accept your thousand dollars for both. We'll give you one title back for a thousand. So I, I took it. I took my my first book back. They still have the second one, and they can, they can just sit there. What I ended up doing with the third one was writing the prologue well enough that you don't have to read the first two books. Oh, smart. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, the first two books are really good, and you're going to get uh, who the characters are, but I didn't want Damnation Books to get one more penny from me. So um, you don't have to read the first two books. However, the first two books... The first book is always going to be a first book. That's just that's just the core of it. It's right. the first book. It's always going to be the first book. That, even, that was the funny thing about going through the revision process was looking at it and going... Oh crap! Why did I write it like this? And it's like I'm not going to break the, the skeletal structure of the story. I'm just all I'm going to do is is polish up the worst of it and let it go back out there. Yeah, but, that's a fair point. I just bought a book um, 
the other day from a very well-known comedian who who's incredibly famous. He has I forget who his publisher is, but they're a, you know well-known publishing house. And I read 20 pages and found a couple copy editing errors. So you know, on those first editions, it is common, I suppose. I I got really fortunate, and that is that my wife uh, did does a lot of scientific journals and she does a lot of different um she's she's written works for the vatican she's written works for um um ecumenical centers that uh, deal with hiv and and um because she was a consultant for uh, like an intermediary between the church and the medical field so she would have to basically go between these two in order to because they're obviously vastly different so she has a lot of experience with with the english language and how to do the um the mechanics which is where as an artist i tend to be a little sloppier so she's been a fantastic editor she was really come up and, and just made my work look good and so what advice would you give to up-and-coming writers then based on your experience? Um, well, there's there's a website. I can't remember if it's Editors and Predators or Predators and Editors, but you get the gist. And you can just Google them and find them pretty easily. And they will um, give you... There's a list of all the publishers that they've heard of. Of course, there's more popping up every day. And whether they are recommended or um, not recommended, Damnation Books on their list was strongly not recommended. So um, that's one of the things I tell new writers is to is to use that list because um, that, that'll save you some grief for sure. Um, obviously, if you're going to go traditional publishing, you're going to get into a lot of different things. The weight is a lot different too. But... Um, the editing process is very difficult because uh, Hounds for the Hunted was actually finished probably six months ago, and then I sat on it for a couple months and then reread it and fixed some stuff up, and then um, went to my my readers. Found a, I have four readers who I trust, and let those guys read it. And then when they found stuff, uh, either context or grammatical, they would send it back to me, and so then I'd fix those. And then it went to my wife for the final. Um, not final, but the copy edits. And then I got a pr- proof copy through Amazon because you can get through CreateSpace, you can get a proof copy. And with that proof copy, I had one final person go through and red mark all the spots where either the, the flow was clunky or where they found something that wasn't right. And they still found easily um, 50, 60 errors in the book. So... So you used your most loyal readers as kind of that initial workshopping group. Absolutely. Oh, that's so cool. Absolutely. Yeah, the people who've been with me since the very beginning, they were the people who I trust the most, and they're part of the creative process now. So they were my test readers, and they all agreed that book three was the best of the series. That's great. Well, would you mind uh, kind of giving a little synopsis of this book? Sure, sure. But I'll give you a little synopsis of each book yeah, so that you can get, get the idea. So the first book is that... Um, Titled? Well, the first one is The Wrong Way Down, and that's the first one in the series. The, um, how I explain this to, to people when I have a couple minutes to explain it is that the story is like, the, what if the Holy Grail was real? And um, King Arthur drank from the Holy Grail, and he lived happily ever after, ruled Camelot, and then finally died of natural causes and um, they kept the grail so the church has 
kept the grail. Now, my story is not about the Holy Grail, but that's like a reference point. So the church has the Holy Grail, and two thieves come in to the temple where it's at and steal it. One of them is captured, but the other one gets away. So the church, which is a remote pilgrimage shrine, because it's kind of like, I kind of like envisioned it like the Dome of the Rock to where like all of Islam goes to pray to this this meteorite that um, was a sign for Muhammad. And um, so it's kind of like the same concept is that people go to this pilgrimage shrine to pray to this thing and it gives them miracles and uh, it's been stolen. So that's basically the story. The beginning of the first book is that the priestess uh, who has been assigned the task of getting these, this thief who's been captured to the local garrison to be tortured, um, the thief escapes because basically that's how you do things in 13th century is you torture people until they tell you what uh, you want. I guess we do that in Guantanamo Bay too, don't we? But um, <laughs> we won't talk about that. We won't talk about that. Um, so um, anyway, uh, so the first book is that the thief has escaped. Uh, the priestess is standing there going, shit, do I like uh, accept that my career has now failed or do I chase after this thief um, while the trail is still hot, uh, which leads to a whole bunch of trouble. So that's basically the first book. The second book is after getting into a whole bunch of trouble, um, they are now escaping and running from a mercenary army that wants their heads. So, and the thief is, um, has been, it's about a rescue mission that's gone, that goes horribly wrong. Basically, the second book is that uh, the thief they're looking for is on this merchant caravan that has been raided by marauders and in attempting to rescue, they end up getting lost in this underground cavern of caves. And it's about the survival of the survive, the survivors and how do they survive in the, these really horrible circumstances. Um, and the third book finally um, is they finally found out where the Holy Grail has gone, even though it's not the Holy Grail, but they found out where the Holy Grail has gone. And it's now in the hand. I can't say that's a spoiler. Damn it. Um, They've, they've cornered the thief who actually stole it in this small little port town, and pirates are actually coming to this port town eventually. Um, and so that's where the tension kind of builds. It's, we're going to use a thief to try to capture a thief, and it's not going to work very well again. And that seems to be the themes with each book is we have this idea that's going to work just brilliantly and then it just all falls apart. And that's kind of what each book kind of does It's Oh, we've got this great idea and then it all falls apart. And so the third one is the next level of it all falls apart. Nice. Well, that sounds like a great series and a great book. And, uh, so are there going to be more books in the series or is this one wrapping it up or the, what, what's on the horizon for you? Well, what happened was the third book was supposed, to, it was supposed to be a trilogy, but it got too big, so I broke it in half. So I have the the last book, which is uh, aptly titled Death Reborn, and uh, it is going to be the final book in this series. There will be a nice opening, so that, um, I can open it up later, but uh, I intend it to be a closure. It'll be, it'll, it'll finish the series. And then there's a there's a door open for the for another series if I decide to go with that, uh, but who knows what I'll do? I got a couple other ideas I'm, I'm kicking around. Uh, I can't say I can't say because uh, but I got a couple ideas. There's one about angels and demons, and I got one way overdone 
but uh, I have a rather unique idea of what I could do for a, a little vampire novella. So I've got some little things that I'm thinking of, but that one's going to be more comic, comedic than um, horrific, I think. And do you have any upcoming Portland readings or anything in the metro area? Actually, I do. I am actually Saturday the 27th of June. I am going to be at uh, Three Mugs Public House in Hillsboro, Oregon with four other, four other, can I count right? No, it's actually five other authors that are going to be reading that night. And um, uh, most of us doing... Um, darker stories i guess uh the theme was bad boys and bad girls so i was actually invited to come read with them because i write a pretty good villain and um also because i have a female protagonist so because of those two things they were interested in what i could read so i will be the second batter for the evening that's great well, I'll have to get these uh, podcasts up there on the interwebs before then so that maybe we can help promote it a little bit um, yeah, it's not much time, is it? That's pretty quick. I know. I I have a a couple others yet to release, but I'll I'll just pump them out. You know, there's no reason for me to wait. <laughs> um, and so, what you've obviously been through a lot of crazy stuff, not only with your life but your writing career as well, has just been you know, just it's been challenging and it's been a little unfair too, which you know I, I hate you know kind of hearing about some of these experiences you've had <laughs> it has been punishing um i um like i said i i have definitely have a a keen belief in fate and um if there's such a thing as um i i have the best bad luck in the world and um absolutely i've met some of the most fantastic and amazing people and i have like blown up bridges to some really good opportunities too um the wrong way down actually got into the hands of one of random house's imprints just after i got the rights back but um because of my distrust of damnation books i i was the one who blew up that bridge um i didn't trust them and they wanted a, a much bigger contract than i was willing to um than I was willing to chew on after being burned like I was with damnation. So yeah, it's been, it's definitely been a turbulent adventure, but uh, it seems like most of the actors and most of the artists who make it have all been pretty well abused. Yeah. And so do you see a direction for your career right now? Like what, what, what do you see there? I, I see a big blank Black, big black tunnel with no light at the end of it but um i'll just keep on pushing on anyway that's kind of what the you know my second book was about being lost underground and that's kind of what it feels like i'm just keep struggling and maybe this maybe this um tunnel here will lead to outside i don't know but um, one of them's gotta lead outside the cool thing about where you're at right now is that you have real experience you have um a body of work you have essays published in a whole bunch of anthologies you have three books and so to me it seems like you're in a really great place like you have some real leverage to use moving forward it does feel that way um and some of them were really good i mean one of the um one of the anthologies i was in was considered for a bram stoker award unfortunately i did not get the nomination because that would have been really cool but it was actually considered for a nomination. So that was in, it was in the pool with maybe 20 other anthologies that they were like, this is one of them that we're thinking of giving a nomination to. So 
and the last ones actually the last story a short story i wrote actually has gotten some critical acclaim um the critics really liked it it was a story about um these two dumb satanists who make a deal with the devil and the the devil shows up 20 years later and says here's here's here i am completing my end of the bargain yeah and um it just gets worse from there really that sounds interesting where can readers find that one that one is in that hoodoo voodoo that you do by um is that right yeah that hoodoo voodoo that you do by um lincoln chrysler he was a cool name isn't that lincoln chrysler (laughs) yeah is the editor for that one not spelled like the car okay yeah and so again where can uh listeners find you on the internet you can find me at jakeelliotfiction.com. You can try to find me on Facebook, too. I'll probably friend you. Most likely, I'm, I'm kind of liberal with who I friend, but um, I tend to say things a little too honestly, and people get mad at me, so I'd recommend just finding me at Jake Elliott Fiction. <laughs> no Twitter, though, huh? Oh, I'm at Twitter, too, but I don't use it very often. But I am on Twitter, at, uh, and I'm at J. Elliott Fiction. All right. Well, if you can believe it, we have already talked for 45 minutes. It's amazing. That crazy? I know. It's amazing. It blows my mind every single time. But um, I'd like to thank you again for coming all the way over here to my neighborhood. It was a lot of fun, Mike. I'd, I'd do it again. Yeah, it's it was really fun. And um, thanks for sharing such personal stories about your life. It, it, it was a really interesting evening. Thank you. All right. Thank you. Well, until next time, this has been another edition of the Me and My Friends podcast featuring myself, Mike Phillips, and this week, my buddy, Jake Elliott. Until next time, bye-bye.